Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, a nightly newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief podcast, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I am David Rothkopf and I am coming to you from an undisclosed location, not too far from New York City, New York, because it is that time of the week. Of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Kavita Patel. Dr. Kavita Patel was the Director of Policy in the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement at the White House. She's a doctor practicing medicine, even as we speak, well, not for the next 45 minutes, perhaps. How are you doing today, Kavita? I'm looking forward to the conversation, but sad that I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it as well. And one of the reasons is that we have two additional guests who uh, we think very, very highly of. One is Barb McQuaid. Barb's the professor of the practice of law at the University of Michigan, was previously U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. How are you doing today, Barb? Doing great, David. Thanks for having me. And uh, with Barb, we also have Joyce White Vance. Joyce is distinguished professor of practice of law at the University of Alabama previously served as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. How are you doing today, Joyce? Well, you know, about as well as any of us are these days, right? But it's good to be with y'all. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, well, the only thing we want to talk about is the complete breakdown of justice in the United States. But let me start with just just a question for both of you. I'll start with Joyce and then Barb and then on to Kavita. The January 6th Commission or committee of in, in the Congress is about to start, according to their schedule anyway, a series of televised hearings. We don't expect as many as we once did. We're not sure really of the purpose, but it is, I think, fair to say that a number of people are frustrated by the progress of our various justice mechanisms for dealing with the aftermath of January 6th, both in the committee and in the Department of Justice. Starting with you, Joyce, are you looking forward to the next steps from the committee as being turning points or sort of more of the same? 
So I still retain my fundamental optimism about America and where we're headed. And I think a big part of the problem is we've all watched way too much law and order, right? We expect in the, this neat TV package encapsulated by commercials for a crime to be committed, solved, and successfully prosecuted. And the reality is, and I know Barb will back me up on this because we've talked about it before, prosecutions are messy and complicated prosecutions are even messier. And here we have an effort, I won't mince words, to overthrow our government that involves a large number of people. I suspect that it's ultimately more than just one conspiracy. I think we have a lot of different conspiracies running maybe on parallel tracks, but with overlapping players. This is really a lot if you're just thinking about the Justice Department for them to to bite off and chew and figure out who to prosecute and how if they're going to. The same thing for the committee. They're being asked to condense an enormous amount of material into something that a public that's, you know, cut their teeth on law and order can comprehend. I think that they can do it. I am very impressed by the people, both staff and elected officials involved in the committee process. They seem to have a plan. They seem to understand that they have a couple of different things that they have to do. They've got to come up with new laws to prevent a recurrence. But they've also got to sell the American people the story of what happened in a compelling way. And I think their willingness to use live testimony, we're starting to get inklings that some of that testimony will come from White House staff or Republicans who were involved in this stuff. I I think that they're going to tell us an important story. Glad we're starting here with optimism. Can you keep it going, Barb? Yeah, I don't know. I'll give you a little realism, maybe. Like Joyce, I do think that these things take way longer than most people think they do. I mean, way longer. I had a you know, very large criminal prosecution against some corrupt people in City Hall. It took five years for us to put it together. And that wasn't as complex as what they're dealing with here. I imagine that they have more resources than we had here in the Eastern District of Michigan to focus on this so that because it's a bigger problem, they have more people to focus on it. But it just takes time, even if you throw an army at it, because you have to do one thing before you can do another. You need to get records before you can figure out where the other records are. And once you get all the records and you've studied them and analyzed them, then you start confronting witnesses with them. And so sometimes it takes one witness to tell you about another witness. And so you have to do these things serially. You can't just do it all at once. And so it does take a very, very long time. And I think that sometimes when members of the public see the news reporting, which is there are some very bad facts out there. A number of people told Donald Trump there was no fraud in the election. And we know they pressured Mike Pence. So there you go. That's it, right? That's all you need. But one of the things the Justice Department has to do is also disprove the negative, you know, things that Donald Trump did not think he had won the election. You have to prove that. And how do you prove it? You can do it circumstantially, but that means you really have to talk to everybody he talked to and everything he touched and read anything he read and anything he wrote. And it just takes a lot of time and you've got to pin that down. So same with the committee. I mean, they've, they've interviewed over a thousand witnesses. So I think they've done a lot of work in, you know, a little over a year and a half. I think their jobs are very different. The job that the Justice Department is doing, of course, is to think about criminal charges and prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Whereas the job that the committee is doing is one, I think we will see a report from them at the end of this, much like the 9-11 Commission report, that will be a useful document. You know, the 9-11 Commission report influenced a lot of legislation that came after it. And I think we'll see the same from this. But I also think there's a political purpose here. I know they want to do the hearings this summer to be able to have something to show the people before the midterms 
in hopes of influencing votes. And I think sometimes those two goals are not always in alignment. You know, wanting to do the right thing for the country by filling important gaps in the law is very laudable. Trying to persuade the American people to vote uh, for a particular party in the midterm elections, I think, creates some conflict with that. So I don't love that aspect of it. But I'm sure there will be, you know, a bit of political grandstanding at these hearings. But I'm also hopeful that we'll learn some additional facts that help us make our government better and stronger. So, Barb, I think you make a good point about justice and politics shouldn't get confused. But the one thing that concerns me is that if they didn't do the hearing now, I'm not sure that they'd have the opportunity to do it after the midterms, because I think that they'll get shut down if Republicans retake the House. Interestingly enough, that's precisely what I was going to say. The other thing that I will just throw in there is that my own particular antsiness about this has me going and looking at other time clocks. And I did go and and look and say, well, how long did it take from the Watergate break-in until uh, that day when seven senior White House officials were indicted for it by the special prosecutor? And it was something along the lines of 620 days, something like that, 623 days, I think it was, which brings us to September 21st of this year. I just I just put it out there because it gives you, a, not that this is in any way, you know, the same kind of thing. This is much more complicated on the one hand. On the other hand, a lot of this took place in plain sight. So it's just there. I offer it as a marker. Kavita. All right. So I'm going to just shift a bit to, to guns and gun control. And by the time listeners listen to this, Biden either has already addressed the nation uh, or is about to address the nation on reactions from New York, Texas, Oklahoma, and countless beyond, unfortunately. So it reminded me of a time when I was in government and after I had just left the White House and Sandy Hook had happened, and it was January of 2013. And remember, Biden was leading the president's task force in response to the Sandy Hook shootings. That time, there were about almost 20 executive actions at that time that Biden himself was kind of outlining to House Democrats. And Obviously, a number of those things not only did not come to fruition in the forms of executive actions, but kind of got upended by obviously legislative priorities and other needs. So tell me, both of you who have both commented on this and written about it, kind of walk through what you expect to happen in light of Biden's deep experience for decades on this topic, looking at what we just reflected on, which are some political realities Faced with, at the same time, oh, by the way, some of the lowest approval ratings, kind of now more and more reports of in White House turmoil, none of which surprises me, by the way, but it does feel like things are stacked. And so if you if you both are sitting with the president, kind of giving him this advice, thinking about things he should talk about with the country in a public address, things that should be on the table for actions taken, what would you say to him? Barb, we can start with you. I would say, Mr. President, You spent decades in the Senate. No one is more equipped to persuade the Senate on what they need to do than you are. You know, in the same way Lyndon Johnson was, you know, this masterful president when it came to getting legislation passed, I would challenge President Biden to do the same. President Obama has said in his book that he kind of staked his presidency on the Affordable Care Act. It was a make or break, but he said, What's the point of getting political power if you're not going to use it? You know, just to, preserve your power. And so I would say to him, this is it. You know, you said you were running for president for the soul of America. 
And we know that the majority of the American people want common sense reform to some of these gun laws. You know, are we going to solve every gun crime? No, of course not. But we can sure make it a lot better. You know, you hear these arguments about, well, removing assault weapons wouldn't change the harms. People would just use a different weapon or red flag laws wouldn't help because this one would have fallen under the radar. You can't stop 100 percent of them. You know, in the same way, seatbelts don't stop every fatal car crash, but they stop a lot of them. And so in the same way, we should be looking at ways to stop a lot of these shootings. And I would ask President Biden to call on Congress to pass laws that ban assault weapons. We did it in the 90s. We can do it again. High capacity magazines, the gun show and internet and ghost gun loophole that allows people to get these guns without any background check whatsoever. Something like 22% of gun owners make their way to, to get their guns without it. And red flag laws in states. I think those are the, the big four that I see. Or in, in assault, if you ban assault weapons, then you don't have to worry about who can buy them. Nobody can. They're doing it in Canada right now, by the way, taking away assault weapons with a buyback program. I'd say, you know, bet the company, stake the presidency on it, get out there, challenge them, explain to the American people why you are opposed to this. And there are certain parts of the country, you know, certain red parts of the country where this will not be popular, but politics is the art of compromise. Let's go. Let's get this done. So I agree with everything Barb says from a policy standpoint. And I would add to that, I guess, if if I had a magic wand and and my wish list for gun laws, I would also include banning high capacity magazines, which I think really contribute to the lethal effects in some of these shootings. I'm less sure about betting the presidency on it. And here I'm going to have to confess to a failure of optimism. I don't think Republicans are negotiating in good faith on this issue. In fact, you can see that on Twitter, where this morning a a popular conservative media commentator said that he had heard that John Cornyn, who's the lead Republican negotiator, was negotiating for gun restrictions and he wanted to talk with them about it. And Cornyn tweeted in response, and I'm going to I'm going to read it. Cornyn says, not going to happen. In other words, new restrictions on guns aren't going to happen. And that's the lead Republican. That's to say the most conciliatory, compromise-oriented Republican. They are dug in. And I think the strategy Democrats needed to take is unfortunately a political one because this is an unconscionable problem and people are dying every day. The Democrats need more votes in the Senate. And that's just, it's just a stark political issue. The Democrats need to win enough seats in November to defeat the filibuster I did not start out as somebody who wanted to see the filibuster go by the wayside, but increasingly some of these issues, and when you see children being killed and people being killed in doctor's offices and grocery stores and churches and temples, something has got to change. So it's the political calculus from my point of view. Yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more. By the way, I neglected to mention at the outset that Joyce and Barb have a podcast of their own called Sisters in Law, which is a great podcast. And uh, I encourage you guys to listen to it, download it. Let me take a different issue because we've got so many we can choose from here. And then we'll try towards the end to, to, to sum up some of this. We also had a jury decision in a case uh, that was part of the John Durham prosecution. This against a former Clinton campaign lawyer, uh, and he was accused of lying to the FBI. He was found not guilty of that. The Durham investigation has yielded nothing so far. Today, I think it was today, Bill Barr, former attorney general, got on television and said, 
I'm proud we've got this Durham campaign out there. It's important to get the alternative narrative out there, which doesn't sound like he was necessarily seeking justice here, but he was trying to achieve a political point of view that this resonates with how at least one political faction uses the justice system. What was your takeaway from this, Joyce? So the standard that prosecutors use for indicting a case comes from the federal principles of prosecution. And essentially, you don't indict a case if you don't have the evidence to get a conviction and to sustain that conviction on appeal. And, you know, it's very rare that prosecutors indict a case and you hear virtually every legal commentator out in the arena saying, I'm not so sure about this one. That's exactly what happened here. People were questioning this case from the get go. The case was under 18 U.S. Code 1001, lying to the government. People questioned, and rightly so, whether there was even a lie told, and if so, if it was material, if it had a tendency to influence FBI decisions in the investigation, which is an element that the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, both to get a conviction and to have that conviction sustained on appeal. And this was always a weak case. I heard some of the lawyers for Mr. Sussman suggest that it was a prosecutorial overreach. I don't disagree at all. And I think if you look at the pleadings in this case, and Barb and I have talked about this, these pleadings, this is what prosecutors would call a speaking indictment. It goes far beyond what's necessary to indict a thousand and one case. That's usually just a short one paragraph indictment. This was page after page of stuff. And what was it about? It was about the horrible witch hunt against Donald Trump over his connections to Russia. This case became a vehicle to tell a narrative that Trump wanted told publicly. And while that might make Bill Barr happy, it does make any career prosecutor happy. That's just purely the politicization of the Justice Department. Well, speaking of the politicization of the Justice Department, Barb, there's another way to look at this. And that is that Attorney General Merrick Garland decided to fund and go ahead with this Durham investigation, even as he decided not to pick up on the uh, Mueller conclusions about obstruction of justice by President Trump, among other Trump crimes. And, you know, some people argued, well, he was doing this to have the appearance of being politically impartial. But when you do one and you don't do the other, the appearance can be something other than that. What, what's your take about this in juxtaposition to that? I think Merrick Garland made a mistake in letting this case go forward. I'm sure the response to that would be, I can imagine a conversation occurred where you know he talked with uh, aides about the pros and cons of letting it go forward. Under the special counsel rules, he can stop it. He is still the boss. If he does, he has to report to Congress what he did and why. And so it would get a lot of public airing. It would likely be criticized by many as a political move. But Janet Reno was famous for saying when she was the attorney general, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So you might as well do the right thing. And to me here, the right thing was to stop this. You know, number one, an innocent man had his life upended for a year. He lost his job. Hopefully he can go back to it and had his reputation tarnished as a result of this, which will never be completely restored. There will always be people who know a little something about something. He did something bad and got in some, some trouble for it. And I can't remember exactly what it was. But there's also, as Joyce mentioned, this larger alternative narrative, this, this indictment, which was, I agree with, with, with Joyce, I thought was 
not just weak, but fatally flawed from the start. I mean, doomed to fail and doomed to fail, but serving as a vehicle, 27 pages detailing this potential conspiracy theory that this was all just an effort to try to get a uh, public report about Trump's connections to Russia. That is a harmful public narrative because now people will read that and assume that's what this was all about. You know, I like all of you, I'm sure I get all kinds of, you know, hate mail and hate email all the time. And a big part of it is, how come nobody's talking about Sussman on the left? I can't believe nobody's talking about it. Well, I'll talk about it. But all I'm going to say is it was a terrible miscarriage of justice to bring these charges in the first place. So I personally am a little disappointed in Merrick Garland for allowing this case to go forward. I think he likely did so knowing that it was very likely to fail, but thinking that would be the justice in and of itself. And that would be the answer to the political critics. But I think that doing the right thing by way of the American public and the Justice Department and Mr. Sussman would have been to stop this thing in its tracks. And then yet, as you point out, he has not proceeded with pursuing the charges recommended by Robert Mueller for obstruction of justice. And I'm not sure, but I think we're getting close to the end on statute of limitations on this, right? I think some of that activity occurred in most of it in 2017 was the five year, right? Uh, uh, Mueller was appointed in March of 2017. And so those acts of obstruction occurred throughout that year. So the statute would run in 2022. So I'm not sure we're there yet to say he didn't pursue them, but he certainly hasn't yet. And I think the time is ticking on that. And it would seem strange to me to not pursue those because I thought Mueller gave a pretty compelling case that the evidence was there. I guess it comes down to the second part of the principles of federal prosecution, which is just because you can file charges doesn't mean you should, and you should assess whether there's a substantial federal interest in doing so. As opposed to the extent that they're looking at bigger fish to fry with the January 6th investigation, maybe they want to put their focus there and not on you know, these smaller potatoes of obstruction of justice. But I think when a president obstructs an investigation, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, particularly when there are a dozen different instances of it. I think the first of the instances where they could use it has lapsed. But as you say, it goes through throughout the year. So there are others, but the clock is is clearly ticking. Kavita, when uh, Barb mentioned getting hate mail, I can't imagine anyone has ever sent you hate mail. I mean, the, the stuff that I get, I, I suspect Barb and Joyce and David, you as well. We all get our share. I have learned how to somehow like just ignore, sadly, all my direct messages on Twitter, which doesn't make me a very popular Twitter person, but I will look for some on purpose when I have a feeling someone I know sent me one but for the majority of them. I will, if they're not somebody I already follow, I don't even bother. It's just not worth it. It's not when worth it, it. When it happens, you know, bring it to our attention. We will fight on your behalf. Yeah. This yeah, is outrageous. Well, like a daily that, thing. It's outrageous. Yeah. Anyway, we've got about five minutes before we take our break. So, why don't you do another round of questions here? Very quickly. This is actually, so uh, Governor Mike DeWine who won a lot of praise, significant praise from Democrats, uh, actually higher in polling in the summer of 2020 because of his actions on COVID-19, which he quickly rolled back. And you could see that there was also this intersection of Trump initially kind of saying like, oh, it's going to be a hotly contested gubernatorial race. And then as of late, not really weighing in on anybody, giving Mike DeWine kind of open season to be able to just walk in and win the governor's election again, is set to sign a bill passed through the state legislature, arming school teachers and allowing for, you know, $100 million of training and expansion up to 24 hours of certification, I believe is a requirement, uh, but significant arms 
not clear what kind of weapons, but teacher training and arms, despite literally every every single group coming out against it, with the exception of the NRA and a handful of law enforcement, with even still law enforcement within Ohio voicing opposition. So talk about, we saw this with reproductive justice. We're seeing this with guns, kind of everyone having to line up sides. And I guess, Joyce, very quickly first, uh, just your reactions. Will we see more of this, especially from people who I think I would not have identified as, you know, alt-right people that were generally moderates and even had some Democrat support. Talk about the fact that these elections are forcing this alignment and what you might see coming out of states that up the ante, if you will. Yeah, I think now that Republicans appear to have won on the abortion issue, the next frontiers will be guns and gays, right? We'll see them attack both of those issues with that same sort of fervor that they used for abortion, which has always been a litmus test in the Republican Party. It's really interesting. You know, Democrats are the proverbial big tent, lots of different points of view. That's been less true in the Republican Party, although there have been some very small outposts where people have favored some level of choice. By and large, anti-choice was a a marker for the Republicans. I think we're going to see this very shamefully in the area of guns. It's great to harden schools as much as possible, consistent with their purpose. But hardening schools as targets for attacks will not end the gun problems we're having. And yet that, I think, is the approach we'll see Republicans take, right? They'll maybe agree to pass a few red flag laws. They'll talk a lot about mental health. They'll ignore the fact that in countries in Europe, you know, that that don't have um, the gun problems that we do, they have just as many mental health issues and try to pretend that that data doesn't exist. But in reality, they'll be more in, more interested in taking hardline political positions that let them win elections than in doing something serious about the problems. I am not a fan of reducing everything to politics and making things be Democratic and, and Republican. But unfortunately, I don't think both sidesism serves us well here. Democrats have their flaws. Don't get me wrong. They want to win elections, too. I don't see them engaging in this same sort of shock theater that Republicans used with abortion that they're now using with guns that I'm sure we'll see as they push to overturn gay marriage and, and other rights for LGBTQ people. And so, yeah, I think the short answer is we're going to see a lot more of this heading into this year, but even more so heading into 2024 when it'll be culture wars on full force, on full display. I think one interesting point Joyce made there, too, is the parallel with the abortion fight and how it might embolden the right. We saw that they spent, you know, a 50 year crusade to end Roe versus Wade. And I fear that guns are on a track not to get better in terms of more restrictions on guns. But it's about to get worse. You know, we await this decision out of the Supreme Court in this case called Bruin, where um, plaintiffs have challenged the law in New York that gives authorities the ability to restrict concealed carry. Uh, You have to have a license and you have to have a reason to get a license. And based on the oral arguments, I'm not really optimistic about the outcome there. I think there's a very good chance that they take the Heller decision, one of the worst and most egregious examples of originalism run amok, in my view where they held that the, the right to possess a gun is a personal right, not in any way related to the militia clause, and that it is uh, a right to carry a gun in one's home. This will extend it now to the world at large. And I think at some point they will say there no, no restrictions are permissible. So I'm really worried about 
I think the gun industry is behind this. The NRA is behind this. There's a lot of money behind it. And it's really anti-democratic because it is opposed to what the majority of Americans think. So I'm, I'm very worried about where we're headed to a, a darker place yet with guns. Hard to imagine it could be a darker place than a country with 120 guns per 100 people in the population, 400 million weapons, and something like 16 mass shootings since Uvalde. We are in as dark a place as any country has ever been on this issue. This is the time we normally take a break. And we say thanks to the people in the general public who've been listening and that will continue on for our members. And we use that as a way of encouraging you to be a member. Uh, a lot of people have signed up in the past couple of months. We are grateful for that. And uh, we hope you, if you have not done so, will continue to do so. At this moment, we will also say thank you very much to Joyce Vance for joining us, because I know Joyce has got to go. We're going to stick around for a few more minutes uh, in our conversation with Bart, but we hope you're back again soon, Joyce. And for, uh, uh, for you, Joyce, and for everybody who is departing at this moment, thanks very much. Uh, and for the rest of you, please stand by. <laughs>